You're listening to Mission Lab. Mission Lab. From our living new man, Ben Here's our parents, Sean and Camille Brace. Hello, everybody. This is episode 82, the title of which is Dogmatism, Functional Pluralism, and Arguing People into Truth. Welcome to Mission Lab. Thanks for joining me. I know it's been a little while. I'm just going to stop providing those caveats because uh, I'm not going to apologize for our sporadic releasing of our episodes, but here we are. It is now uh, the middle of November here in the great state of Maine, and uh, we're gearing up for Thanksgiving. I'm really excited about what I want to share with you this morning. I am still solo. I'm so low that I'm really sad. Um, Very bad joke, but no, I'm by myself. Thank you for the outpouring of emails that you sent to uh, me uh, and my my dear wife uh, asking her to return to the podcast. I think we're inching closer to that happening someday. So um, yeah, you know, it's going to happen sometime soon. So uh, by the way, just a couple things. And I, one of my big pet peeves when I listen to podcasts is that people kind of have like 30 minute intros and I desperately Try not to do that, but I wanted to share uh, just one little remark because I wanted to thank you, our dear listeners, for making this a successful podcast. I was in Tennessee recently, and I ran into a young man uh, named Jose Briones. Shout out to Jose. He listens to, uh, he listens to this podcast. He is a very good uh, and successful and prolific podcaster himself. He uh, has a podcast called Disruptive Adventism. And uh, he had me do an interview for another podcast that he'll also put on that podcast. But um, he was mentioning, and I was quite humbled by his remarks, that our podcast, Mission Lab, is kind of like the grandfather, and and I don't use that yeah, I don't know if he actually used that term, but I don't use it in a pejorative way. But it's kind of like the grandfather of uh, Seventh-day Adventist podcasting. Like we were the uh, the pioneers of it. So um, I thought that was a nice compliment. He also mentioned when we were talking about uh, downloads and all that, that we, although our listenership is not reaching millions at this point, I must add, as of November 20, 2019, I'm sure if you listen to this in 20 years, we'll be having billions of people listening. But uh, we, as far as Seventh-day Adventist podcasts go, um, are in the top percentage of those that would receive lots of downloads. So that's pretty cool. Um, Jose's podcast, as I said, is called Disruptive Adventism. I would recommend it. He does a great job with it. He's, uh, he's in the top He's a he's a one percenter. We'll we'll say that. Um, but from his estimation, he knows a lot about the Seventh Day Adventist podcasting world. Uh, we're doing pretty well, so that's cool. So thanks, guys, for making our podcast um, something that is worth continuing to creatively pursue. 
And uh, we take joy in that. We are very humbled by it. As I said, there's no delusions of like grandeur here, but it's just nice to know that we are making a difference. And you guys have stuck with us throughout our sporadic releasing. And so thanks again. We really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, hopefully it continues to be worth your while. So uh, today, the again, the name of the podcast is Dogmatism, Functional Pluralism, and Arguing People into Truth. And what, the, I, I just got this idea. Um, this is not one that I've been planning to uh, record for a long time. This is one that just popped in my head because something occurred to me. I had an epiphany. I had a moment the other day and it was born out of a meeting. I don't know if I'd call a meeting. It was a luncheon that I have weekly with some friends of mine, um, who come from various, uh, perspectives on the, I'll say Christian spectrum. We'll, we'll put it that way. Um, and the epiphany I had is that I have become less and less dogmatic in my philosophy, my theology, I've become in my religious life, I have become less and less dogmatic. And I think that is primarily because people are not argued into truth. Let me say that again. I have become less dogmatic, among other reasons, because people simply are not argued into truth. Again, let me say it one more time. They are not, they are not argued into truth. I think um, within Christianity in general, and then maybe Seventh-day Adventism in particular, We've kind of glorified this uh, argumentative, and I would say even apologetic form of evangelism. And um, there is this idea that if we just kind of approach people from purely rationalistic perspectives, that we will be able to like convince them so much that we are right, that they will be overwhelmed by the rightness of our rightness, that they will run into our arms and say, oh, yes, I want to follow Jesus, or oh, yes, I want to, you know, become a Seventh-day Adventist. And quite simply, that's just not how it works. It especially does not work in this day and age where we are in a post-Christian, some call it post-truth, Age Now, I, I don't know if, you know, I, I don't really know that the term post-truth is uh, accurate description of the way things are today. But, um, but nevertheless, we live in a, a very um, pluralist society, especially where I come from in New England, in the Northeast, uh, in societies that are, you know, very non-religious and secular. Um, Quite simply, if you are interacting with somebody who is sort of of that particular persuasion, <clears throat> um, and even those who aren't, I mean, again, people who are 
Christians on the various you know points of the spectrum from ultra progressive to well I'm not going to say ultra conservatives but even ultra conservatives are not going to be one into gospel truth via argumentation um, what is going to first of all be the most influential and pivotal part of discipleship is a life that is well lived but uh, people are they have they have a um, an allergy towards dogmatism and I think what used to be the case is that you could go into a city or a town and you could just basically have a theological debate and people are like, okay, what does the Bible say? And I want to know whatever the Bible says. And so you come in and you overpower them with your rationale, your logic, your um, you know, arguments, your biblical you know, proof texting, and they you know, they used to be able to, you know, they, they would be open to that and they would come into that. I would also say that historically within Seventh-day Adventism in particular is that we have largely, um, I would say, discipled, and I'll, I'll use that in the broadest sense of the term because I don't know if it's a, a completely accurate descriptor of what we have done, um, but we've historically almost exclusively discipled people into Adventism, and usually it's just other Christians. We, we don't very rarely, if ever, disciple you know non-Christians, but we have historically discipled them into Adventism using this type of uh, proof-texting, argumentative, and I, and I use that in the best sense of the term even, um, method. And the reason for that is because typically when um, we have, quote-unquote, success in leading people into our particular brand of faith is they are already coming with a an open interest in, an openness to, like, just having their views corrected. So... Like when we have a prophecy seminar, for example, the people that are coming to that are people who are like, if you were to do a scale of one to 10 about uh, of the journey from, you know, atheism into what I would consider to be the fullest, and I say this humbly, but the fullest expression of the gospel and truth, um, yeah, our traditional methods are basically drawing in people who are like a nine out of 10 already. So they're coming consciously contemplating and op- and like hungry for quote unquote truth. And so all as it takes is for us to like correct them in their misunderstandings of, of truth. And so we can be more dogmatic. We can you know, be more black and white. And we can say, you're coming to me as somebody who, you know, you you are um, sort of by like definition implicitly demonstrating that you think I have something to like tell you about. I have something to 
correct you on, or I have something to, you know, I have, I have something that I can share with you that kind of, um, leads you into a deeper understanding. So, so we can do that in such a method. Now that's a larger, you know, discussion and how we do it and, and what we share with them and all that is another discussion, but nevertheless, that is the traditional. And I know, you know, obviously you listened to my last episode. I talk a lot about tradition and so forth, but that is the typical, most common way that we lead people into, um, what I would consider to be this beautiful theological paradigm. Um, but quite frankly, most people in society are not at that place. And, you know, it's cool. There's plenty of people that, that we can draw in using that approach. Um, sometimes I wonder about the level of, uh, emotional stability and health a lot of times you know again i don't want to be critical but uh, of course i often am um but a lot of times the people that we bring in through that way are not always the most balanced people so uh the reality is is that most people the vast majority i would say 99 percent of a given population are not in that moment consciously contemplating uh, simple um, objective truth claims. And so when I come and I'm in community with somebody, when I'm in conversation with somebody, when I am journeying with them and they come from a, you know, non-Christian background, an unchurched background, you know, whatever, wherever they are on the religious spectrum, atheist, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, you know, Christian of some stripe, um, I, I cannot come to them with this dogmatic, you know, attitude and posture. It is simply not going to resonate and be attractive to them. You know, I, th I think that's the frustrating thing that no matter how good my arguments are, and I, you know, I've, again, I spent a lot of time dialoguing with people of, you know, all points of the religious spectrum. No matter how good my arguments are, there is nothing that I can do, that I can say, that will ultimately argue and persuade somebody into truth. And that, you know, that can be a very frustrating thing, but you simply learn. Like if you, if you come thinking that, oh man, I have the truth and, you know, I, you know, if I just argue it well enough, then these people are going to like bow down and say, yes, you are speaking the truth. It's just not going to happen, guys. It is not going to happen. Um, so we so so what I kind of how I describe it is that to some degree we need to be and I am to you know again some degree I've become a functional pluralist. Now what is pluralism? Pluralism is sort of this attitude that all views are equally valid that um everyone's perspective has a place at the table that, um, you know, no one person has 
quote unquote the truth. Now, uh, just a little side note: no, no one person does have the whole truth, which is another story altogether. So there is, there actually is something to learn from people that we might think don't have much to teach us. But, um, but nevertheless, like even granting the idea that I have a a larger grasp of the truth than somebody I'm speaking with, I'm not going to um, be very persuasive if I approach them with a level of dogmatism and arrogance. So I need to be a functional pluralist. I need to sit there at the table. I need to listen to other people, offer their perspective. This does not mean that I don't offer my perspective. It doesn't mean that I don't uh, speak with you know, great conviction. But it's going to be less about, guys, this is the truth, and this is what the Bible says, and more like, you know what? In my experience, this has been important to me, and it's been influential on me, and I as I understand scripture or I understand, you know, the big questions of life, this is what makes sense to me. And I can speak with conviction. I can speak with great gusto and, and pathos, but, um, but I, I can't do it in a way that demeans the other person or acts as though I have it figured out and they don't, uh, because that is just fairly, just just frankly, it's very unattractive and it's a turnoff. So I need to have great humility. I need to have a posture of 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 listening. Um, I need to be willing to um, you know act in a way that doesn't make it seem like I have it all figured out. By the way, just as an important side note, actually, it's not even a side note. This is one of the main notes. This is right in the middle. This is not side, this is middle. Uh, if you read the Gospels, this is this is largely the way that Jesus operated. Um, now he 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 wasn't living in you know 2019 in the state of Maine where pluralism is a virtue, but he had his own type of context um, that was not too dissimilar. Um, but you know, very rarely does Jesus kind of just come out with this overwhelming like message of I'm right and you're wrong and and does he have this kind of like straightforward overwhelming like overpowering argument a lot of times Jesus is asked a question and what does he do he asks a question like that's his answer um a lot of times they ask him a question and he goes off on this parable and they're kind of like having a hard time following him and they're not real sure what he's talking about. And a lot of times he turns it back on them. Like one example, and this is one of just many, but I, I was just actually reading this recently. And I was reminded of, of it. In Luke chapter 10, by the way, that's a very important, interesting chapter where Jesus, at the beginning of the chapter, kind of encourages the 70 that he sends out to go and proclaim the kingdom before him 
Um, he encourages them to take a posture of weakness and humility. He's like, when you go somewhere, don't bring anything with you. Just kind of be in a, in a posture of weakness so that other people would welcome you in. And he's like, if they welcome you in, just stay with them. Um, you know, eat what they give to you. Don't, you know, make a fuss about it. And so he, again, he's just kind of underlining this posture of weakness and humility and vulnerability. Uh, but then he comes to the latter part of the chapter in verse 25 and it says, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if it was me, I would launch into this like 20 minute gospel sermon, you know? Uh, but check out what Jesus says. He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So like the guy comes and he asks the single most important question that a person could ever ask. I would propose to you, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, you know, what does the Bible say? What do you think? What's your reading of it? How do you understand it? What's your interpretation? So Jesus does not come with dogmatism. He doesn't come with arrogance. He comes with a posture of humility. And the man says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now check this out. And he said to him, that is Jesus, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. So Jesus turns it back on him. The guy comes, he asks him a question. Jesus doesn't answer him with an answer. He answers him with a question. He's like, well, what do you think? And the man's like, well, I think we should love the Lord our God and then love our neighbor as ourselves." And Jesus is like, yep, yep, you're right. That's right. Yeah, go ahead. Go do that. That's, that sounds like a good idea to me. So Jesus just pulls off this masterful, you know, response where he, again, is not dogmatic. Now, again, there's times where Jesus brings it straight. Um, he like doesn't mince words. There's times where he does that. Uh, that is usually, by the way, with um, a lot of times with the religious leaders where he is, you know, I'll use this term rebuking them. And I mean that in the best sense of the term. But by and large, he's interested in conversation. He's interested in dialogue. That's part of what I'm talking about here. Um, we we're going to we're going to lead people into greater experiences of truth by conversation and dialogue more than monologue. Um, questions, a well-placed question is almost always more powerful than a even a well-placed statement um, because it allows for self-reflection, which is ultimately going to be more powerful and influential than a statement because self-discovery is always a, a more um, enduring uh, it's always in a, always a more enduring change than an external sort of motivated discovery. So if I come in to discover something myself, it's going to be a lot more meaningful to me than if you tell me it. 
and uh, I'm going to embrace it more. Now, again, if I'm coming and I'm wanting to know, like, and I don't know, and I come to you and I ask you, um, but even there, again, Jesus like turns it back on him so that he could come to a place of self-discovery. But uh, people are, it's yeah, it's just going to be a, a lot more influential on somebody if they can take ownership in the process and they can do self-reflection. So yeah, Jesus was was uh, the master of this. He he asked questions. He told parables. Um, he you know had had a, a give and take. And so you know we we need to if if we're going to you know disciple people into a faith, if we're going to disciple people into the good news of God's love, if we're going to disciple them into a deeper experience with God in truth, then we're going to have to be willing to be, again, what I call a functional pluralist. Um, you know, the reality is, and this is part of it, the reality is is that a life well-lived is so much more influential as well than an argument well spoken, you know, um, that will, that will really get people's attention and that, that will do far more than we could ever do. And the reality is here, here's the reality is that the spirit is the ultimate discipler of people. The spirit is the ultimate convictor of truth. And, um, you know, the spirit is working a lot more than, than we realize. Uh, the spirit is, can go to places in people's hearts and minds that we obviously can never go. And so all we have to do is just, you know, humbly cooperate with the spirit and, you know, just be in harmony with what the spirit is already doing. So I don't have to stress out because again, I've, I've, I've been there where I've stressed out. I'm like, oh man, if only I could come up with this argument that could overpower and convince somebody of this idea, but it's not going to happen. So I can, I, I can just rejoice in the fact that I don't have to worry about that, that I don't have to come up with the best argument. Um, again, we live in an age where there's a cottage industry surrounding apologetics. And I'm speaking in the broader Christian world where you know, we have these debates that you can watch on YouTube and you can download these podcasts that present these overwhelming apologetic arguments about, you know, the resurrection and, you know, all these things. And I'm, I'm not saying those don't have their places, but those are probably going to be a little more um, impactful on those who are already um, consciously moving in faith rather than those who are on the outside, quote unquote, and not um, consciously looking at uh, faith. Um, here's the reality. I think I've said this before, and forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but it's been so long since we've uh, recorded some of these ideas that it bears repeating them, that um, the there's lots of people who will not move from a place of conscious seeking after gospel truth, good news truth, until they see the reality of that gospel lived out in living color before their eyes. And it is as we live out 
the good news before their eyes that they start to be able to recognize and identify longings that they have in their heart that they never realized they had before. So when they see somebody acting in an other-centered, loving, forgiving manner um, in front of them, then that kind of awakens and stirs up longings that they never realized they had. And then we put words to that and we say, oh, this is, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is God's love that, that I'm living out. And so that's what it takes is for, for them to see it in living color. And um, that can't happen strictly through argumentation. It can't happen strictly through uh, receiving a, you know, a flyer in the mail. Um, they will never be conscious of this longing until they see see it lived out before them. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a lot more of the spirit. It's a lot more of embodying the the good news. It's a lot less of arguing dogmatically people into truth. And um, again, this goes against a lot of what we have traditionally understood as, in particular, my particular tribe, my, my uh, community of faith, the Seventh-day Adventism. Um, but it's a, pr- a critically important idea. I would end with a story. Um, I, I think I'm starting to repeat myself within this episode, but I would end with a story. And I believe it was uh, Tim Chester in his book, Total Church. Um, I believe that's what it was. He quotes uh, this other book about this man who he was living in the United Kingdom because uh, that's where he's from, and he had been discipling uh, a a friend of his into faith, and uh, this guy who he was discipling was a um, a pretty avowed atheist. He was he was not uh, somebody who consciously, you know, was was trying to uh, to explore faith. But they had good conversations. You know, they had a good exchange. They. You know, the, 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 the Christian dude would, um, you know, present his best arguments and, you know, in, in a humble, winsome way, but still try to, like, give him food for thought. And after four years, four years, finally, the, uh, the non-Christian, the atheist, um, surrendered to Christ and, and became a disciple of Jesus. And as they were discussing and reviewing kind of the journey the, the, the newly christened uh, believer in Jesus said, you know what was the most convincing thing that you did during our journey together? The thing that really um, kind of led me into a place of, of faith. Um, he said, it wasn't the arguments you made. Um, it wasn't the, uh, you know, the Bible studies that we had, he said, the the thing that really convinced me that I needed what you had was the first time you invited me over to your house for dinner. And uh, you invited me in, your wife was there, your children were there. You just made me some simple, you know, soup or something. And he said, you know, I looked at the way that you and your wife interacted. I looked at the way you and your children interacted. And it was right then and there that 
I realized that you had something that I didn't have. And I knew that I desperately wanted what you had for myself and my fiance. And I realized that the thing that you had that I didn't was Jesus. And that was the the point when I, you know, when I consciously started really seeking after truth and wanting to explore and discover what, what it was that you had. So like that, that's just a perfect example. Now I will add to this that as the, the, the man who was leading him in the faith was reflecting on that in the book, he said, you know what? I remember that moment. And the crazy thing is that moment was like such a challenging moment because I was freaking out because um, I thought my children were behaving terribly and I was like trying to correct them and trying to get them to behave the way I wanted to get them to behave. And he's like, even in our imperfect moments, like God's power, if we're submitted and surrendered to the spirit, God is able to bring you know, an impression. And and the man that was, you know, brought into faith, he said, well, I just saw how you kind of lovingly and humbly corrected your kids and you did it in a very gentle manner. Um, But, you know, even in those moments of what we perceive to be imperfection, when we draw people in, um, those are powerful moments for the gospel. And it doesn't come through arguing. It just doesn't. And, um, so like, yeah, like we don't have to have the greatest food we're giving. We don't have to have the nicest and tidiest house. We don't have to, you know, have the greatest, you know, educational attainments. We don't have to have the greatest arguments. We don't have to have it all figured out. It's just us coming humbly to people. Yeah, we speak with conviction about this God who has changed us and who loves us and has has given us so so much joy and satisfaction in life. But ultimately, it's only through the power of the Spirit that people are drawn deeper into God's heart. And us bearing witness to, born out of our own personal journey and what has changed us that will um, ultimately, you know, lead people into a conscious place of, of faith. So um, that's encouraging to me. Uh, again, I just want to invite you to be less dogmatic. And, uh, you know, faith is less about being black and white and all these ideas and more about um, experiencing the power in all of its emotional, relational, social, psychological intellectual facets uh it's more about experiencing that um than having some black and white dogmatic uh you know i'll prove to you what uh what faith is um so it's just i think it's just a refreshing thing and so i want to encourage you to be less dogmatic to be more functionally pluralist and to stop trying to argue people into truth because it doesn't work anyway. And one more thing, even when it does, all we get is people who are argumentative then.
Because if you win people through argument, you are winning them to argument. Somebody has said, I know I'm going on a tangent here at the end, but you know, this is my world. Uh, somebody has said, if we, if we win people into truth, quote unquote, by demonstrating or proving to them that everybody else is wrong, or if you know you have been deceived all this time, and here's the real truth. If we win people that way, guess what we're winning them to? We're winning them to have that same posture where they start to closely examine everybody else around them to see if they're teaching error. And uh, I think we've created a lot of disciples of that ilk over the years. Um, so yeah, if it's if it's based upon the rightness of a particular set of beliefs over against the wrongness of everybody else's belief, and if there's a heavy emphasis on deception, and you've been deceived your whole life, and here's the truth of the matter now, when they come into the community of faith, they're going to continue looking for error, and it's going to make for a kind of a miserable uh, disciple of Jesus. So it's not worth arguing people into truth anyway, because, you know, we're not going to, you know, Jesus said you go to the ends of the earth to create a, a convert that's, you know, 10 times more like the devil than yourself. And we don't want to do that pretty hard. Though that's the moment where Jesus was pretty harsh and strong. He's speaking to the Pharisees. So we don't want to argue people in the truth anyway. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, hope you've been stimulated and don't, don't, you know, hesitate to reach out. Thank you for all those who have reached out wanting those quotes from the last episode 81 on tradition. And, uh, thanks again for listening and have a great Thanksgiving. If you are here in the United States and if you are not, you can also have a nice time of Thanksgiving because we should do that every day. All right. Have a great one, guys. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to Mission Lab. Our theme song is Portland Hike by Tiny Music. Additional editing by Chris Ogay. Follow us on Twitter at MLabPodcast. Podcast.